and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. Hi, my name is Louise Mabulo. I'm a chef, farmer, and entrepreneur from the Philippines, and I'm the founder of my social venture called The Cacao Project, which cultivates resilient and sustainable livelihoods for farmers. I'm also a UN Young Champion of the Earth, a Forbes Under 30 honoree, and a National Geographic Young Explorer. It's just amazing. There's so many things, and we could, of course, do a whole podcast on each and every one of them. But let's start by focusing on The Cacao Project. Perhaps you could tell me how it started and what it was really that led you to begin it as a project. Definitely. I started the Cacao Project. Well, I would trace it all the way back to December 25th in 2016, which was Christmas Eve. My town was hit by Super Typhoon Not 10, and that destroyed about 80% of agricultural land in my town. And as a chef, I was working with farmers in my community, and I realized how vulnerable they were to changes in climate and weather and extreme weather conditions like typhoons, and I wanted to help them out. So I started off with really doing a little typhoon relief effort or project that would help rebuild their livelihoods. But I realized that that was kind of a band-aid solution to what was going on, which was really more deeply rooted. It was climate change and a vulnerability to all of these disasters. So what I did was I researched some crops that was more resilient, that was better suited to our ecosystem, that would help them have a better income source. And I found cocoa was one of them. And we started trying to help out farmers in diversifying their crops and expanding uh, their, their, their livelihood, really, and making sure that they could maximize the land space and be more resilient for upcoming typhoons. And when you started it, were the farmers receptive to your ideas and your interest in trying to help them out? Oh, that's a funny story. Not many of them were very receptive, actually. Um, In the Philippines, we have a cultural stigma associated to agriculture. So people would visualize farmers as older men, of course, of a certain social class. And it's it's this negative stigma that's perpetuated in school. So if a girl like me comes forward and starts talking about agriculture, no one's going to take me seriously. And we started off with 40 farmers who actually thought to give it a try and actually give us a chance with them. And when they were actually reaping harvests and increasing their income source by about 3,000 to 12,000 Philippine pesos a month in the first two months, they, they realized that it was actually quite effective. And they decided that, you know, we're, we're definitely going to work with this in the long term. And other farmers started coming on board because they saw how profitable it was. I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and this is a podcast so people can't see you, but you are, you're 22, is that right? Yes, I'm 22. And you started this project when you were I was about 18 years old when I started the project. And food and things around food wasn't new to you. You had won MasterChef when you were how old? Oh, I was 12 years old when I won MasterChef. Uh, So I was 12 and that jump-started a culinary career for me since I was 12. And I did professional training at the age of 14 to 18 years old. So it wasn't quite new to me. So what was it that made you desire to go into sustainable farming and to try and educate um, farmers into sustainability and particularly with cacao? 
actually, that's a really interesting story because as I was getting into the culinary industry, I didn't want to just be a typical chef that worked at the back end of a restaurant and, you know, had no more meaningful work beyond that. I, I mean, I had this platform that I wanted to use to help promote local ingredients and, and the value chain really of farming and food production. So I started working with farmers initially in farm to table cuisine and promoting local ingredients and empowering livelihoods that way. Uh, but it wasn't until my time was hit by a typhoon that I realized that I need to actually get on the ground and do something much more meaningful than just presenting these ingredients. But it's more of telling the story of farmers and making sure that those farmers will be there to stay because the average age of farmers in the Philippines is 57 years old. And that means in as little as 15 years, we could hit a food security crisis because our population of farmers are aging. But also no one wants to get into this industry because of the many hazards that go along with it and because of the perception of farmers uh, in the country. And so a big part of what you do remains educating farmers and people about sustainable farming. And I wonder how much biodiversity and biodiversity loss fits into that educational program and into what you do, because the premises I think you know of this podcast is that our food systems are having a very severely detrimental effect on biodiversity. Yeah. Is that something that drives your project and your desire to, to help? Yes, it definitely does. Now, if you come into the Philippines and you see the aftermath of typhoons and disasters, our farmers are some of the people that also contribute to biodiversity loss because they would end up having to... Uh, uh, they'd be driven to drastic means of making income. For example, they would deforest their coconut trees because those coconut trees wouldn't be productive for up to five years. So they would cut down mass uh, scale of land just to sell them as lumber because they know that they need an immediate source of income. And what we wanted to do was cultivate resiliency so that after typhoons, they could bounce back better and have immediate sources of income. And on the other hand, we're also educating them on the value of regenerative agriculture and you know, integrated agriculture and making sure that sustainable farming practices are intrinsically woven into their lifestyles so that they know the profitability of it. But they also know that through their work, they're taking care of the environment and making sure that they're sustaining it for years and years to come. Um, because I think the idea of soil degradation is pretty new to our farmers since we do have rich, lush soil and lots of ecosystems and biodiversity existing already. But people don't really register that the loss of biodiversity could also mean the loss of their livelihoods in the long term because of um, improper stewardship to our land. So part of that is teaching them how that's helping them and their livelihoods in the long term and making sure that they actually contribute to regreening our landscapes. You mentioned some things there, regenerative farming, regreening, did you say? Yes. What else, what other sort of new ways, new sustainable ways of doing things are going on? with the cacao project? Well, I wouldn't say that the work that we're doing is exactly new um, because of course, when I got into this as a young person, I was looking to push forward and translate into the modern world. And I realized my mistake early on where it's that a lot of our farmers have already been doing regenerative and sustainable farming practices for years, but because of colonialism and imperialism and corporations teaching them to outdate all of these traditional farming practices, a lot of our farmers forgot that. So it's a matter of bringing back traditional farming um, and localizing these systems. Our farmers make their own pesticides out of chilies that they've grown. They make their own foliar sprays out of food waste. 
and they make their own fertilizers also out of food waste and out of cattle manure that's available locally. Um, so it's a matter of teaching them how to utilize their resources and bringing back old practices uh, that sometimes it doesn't make scientific sense. You know, a lot of our farmers would whistle and the wind would come to help with um, sieving through skins of rice and skins of, of cocoa. And another thing is, you know, looking at the sun and what whatever color it is at sunset would tell us the weather the next day. And those like really basic indigenous and traditional knowledge are things that we hope to preserve and combine with new practices so that we can bring that into the next uh, next decade as we're trying to restore our ecosystems and teaching farmers that they're valuable knowledge sources as well. It's so interesting. I find that that's a theme that um, goes through a lot of these conversations, the combining of the old traditional practices with a picking a bit of the new and fascinated chilies. Oh, we use chilies for pesticides and it's it's really crushing them and using the capsaicin and the, the kind of spicy aspect of it to fend off insects that aren't uh, beneficial to our cocoa trees. But it also, it's not as strong that it destroys everything. It's actually, um, it's a lot more natural and it's within the ecosystem. So you're not introducing chemical pesticides that will contribute to soil acidification. Gosh, that's absolutely brilliant. I, I wonder if that's something that can take on here. And, and the Cacao Project has landed you many prestigious awards for young environmentalists. Particularly, you've got the Young Champions of the Earth Prize from the United Nations Environment Programme. What does that mean for you and how can that um, help and encourage and enhance your work going forward? Oh, yeah. So, for example, the UN Young Champions of the Earth, it's one of the most prestigious awards for young environmentalists um, in the planet today. And that platform, it was awarded to me in 2019. It has really jumpstarted us and given us the opportunity to actually have a seat at the table um, in policy guidances and policy making that actually impact farmers and also helps increase the representation of farmers on mainstream media, on different platforms and social media, and helps us amplify our message of destigmatizing agriculture and intertwining uh, environmental stewardship into farming, which many people don't realize is actually a possibility, especially in an industry like agriculture, which contributes to about a third of greenhouse gas emissions. You say it's giving you a seat at the table. So you do sit around and I've seen, you know, so many events and fascinating discussions around the UN tables where policy is being made. Do you feel there is a genuine then interest in issues around biodiversity and farming? And do you feel optimistic, hope, have hope for the future from that? I think that there are currently existing platforms that are covering food systems and biodiversity in food systems. I think the traction is slowly growing. It's not where we want it to be at, but it's going in the right direction. Um, and at the moment, I mean, in the Philippines, we have tons of policies that actually exist surrounding biodiversity and agriculture and environmental preservation. It's a matter of really making sure that they're implemented and that they're culturally sensitive to the people that they'll be impacting. So I am really hopeful now that more awareness is being spread about it and Hopefully that more people will go on to actually voice out about the need to actually bring agriculture and farmers into the fold of sustainability and environmental stewardship, especially since there is a sense of discrimination in the environmental industry that, you know, farmers are in an unsustainable industry. But reality is we're tapping into this opportunity to actually 
empower them so that they can be part of our solutions. And you're still a chef doing extraordinary things in that field. How does your food and your approach to cooking reflect the importance of sustainability and you know making sure that biodiversity thrives? Well, I try to make sure that in my recipes, I, I try to practice heirloom cooking and slow food and sourcing as much as possible from local farmers who support this cause. And when I serve food in pop-up dinners, especially, it's, it's also an experience where you get to see the real faces and stories and the effort that was all contributed in making that plate of food that's served right in front of you. Uh, so I talk about the farmers and make sure that they're represented and their voices are heard and their life experiences are also told throughout the dinner. It's not just, you know, serving dinner and being completely, uh, how do you call this, disengaged from the production end of things. It's sitting down and being able to appreciate the alchemy of soil, water and air that all went together to make sure that that food reached your plate and that you get to enjoy it today. Given your experience, you essentially turned your dreams or your and your visions into a reality. You got out there, you, you launched the project, you're doing extraordinary things. What, what's your advice to people who listen to you and think, well, she's amazing, but feel ultimately helpless about what's happening in terms of the planet and you know, we hear about biodiversity loss and the contribution that our food systems is making towards that every day people feel quite helpless you've been so proactive what's your advice well my advice to people is to start small it doesn't it can start in everyday decisions it doesn't have to be this huge project I started this off as a typhoon relief effort really that helped farmers and really just gave away seeds and donations from people and I never imagined that it would go to such a scale that it would actually help people it was just starting with the intent that I wanted to make a difference and making small decisions at a time that led ultimately to larger impact. And not just that, but I think for people um, who actually have a passion or want to do something, it's a matter of starting locally where you have that nuanced cultural understanding um, needed to understand the impacts of climate in everyday life. And it's also knowing that you can intrinsically tie it with whatever your work is or whatever your passion is. Um, There are small steps that you can do, which is start local, work with your community, um, support local farmers and uh, producers that actually do regenerative farming. And I think those are just some of the small ways off the top of my head that people can help out. Uh, But you also don't have to start from scratch. You can go on and look for organizations that are already doing something and find small ways to support them or contribute as well. And what now is occupying your time? um, And what about looking forward to the future, the next few months and years, perhaps? Oh, I I really love this question because at the moment we're producing our own chocolates uh, that are regeneratively made by local farmers. We're making chocolate bars and it's really exciting because you get to taste a bar chocolate that we've been working over four years for now and so it's it's something that we can finally share to people and visualize and tell stories about uh, the journey that led there and all the disasters and typhoons and how from this time of bleakness we're actually at a time where we can be hopeful for the future because we've built something new Um, in the future i'm looking to build what i would like to call an agropolis where we're turning agriculture into an art form and changing people's ideas about this so that people can come visit our farms and see the biodiversity and all the birds and and worms and all these things that come together to actually make these farms what they are and have an authentic experience with nature that will cultivate a sense of gratitude for where their ingredients come from and 
make sure that in the long term they'll be more conscious about where they source their produce. Gosh, that sounds extraordinary. I would love to come and I would love to taste the chocolate bars. And I wonder, you talk about how times of difficulty and crisis in terms of the typhoon led to your project. But what about the last year or so? There's a lot of talk um, in UN circles about Build Back Better post-pandemic and COVID. Um, Has that had much of an impact upon what you've been doing? And do you think that these ideas of building back better and things improving as we hopefully go forward are realistic? I think it is. I mean, I live in an archipelago of over 7,000 islands. And and over the years, we've started importing a lot more ingredients than needed. But because of the lockdowns, there was highlighted the need to localise our food systems and build food sovereignty. And the pandemic showed that it was possible and it also helped support the livelihoods of farmers at a local level and improve the biodiversity because farmers realized that we need to actually preserve our ecosystems if we're going to continue doing this. And we want to continue doing things at a local scale. So I think that the pandemic has highlighted the need for that. And I also have the mindset that because of crises and all of these things that are going on, there has never been a time in history when a crisis came and nothing changed. So this transformation, this is an opportunity for transformation into a better world. And people, I think, have been more sensitive to that because of the lockdowns and the time we've spent uh, looking to localize our systems and find solutions. And lastly, then, you gave some advice about what people can do, you know, in their own lives. You also said you don't need to start from scratch. Given we've heard about sort of your extraordinary projects, um, what can people do to help you? I think um, on one hand, you can definitely visit our farms and contribute to our cause in working towards destigmatizing agriculture and understanding food production in a really meaningful way beyond just getting food from a grocery shelf. Um, it's really seeing the systems that contribute to actually creating ingredients and seeing the worms, the birds and the soil and the tree cover. I think that's that's a beautiful experience that no one should miss out on. Second of all, we're going to be launching our chocolate line very soon. So that's something for everyone to look out for. And you can definitely purchase a bar of chocolate from local farmers that will go on to support livelihoods that intrinsically help nature and re-green landscapes. I feel like the one thing I haven't asked you that people might not understand is you're very much focused on cacao and cocoa planting. Perhaps you could just explain the process that you were making happen, the actual process of, of making the chocolate that is their livelihood. Oh yeah, so I'd love to. We work with a lot of local farmers at the moment, over 200, to plant diverse landscapes. So it's not just cocoa, we have um, eggplants, okras, chilies, pumpkins, coconuts, corn, and all sorts of different things within these landscapes. But our primary form of livelihood is cocoa because it has a good profitability and huge market. And the world has a current cocoa deficit. So we're trying to help supply for that. Uh, But what we do is cocoa comes from pods, which not many people know. It's these beautiful red and green and yellow pods. And we take it out, we dry it in the sun, we ferment it, and we uh, grind it into what will become a chocolate liqueur. And we also get part of the fermented juice and make it into vinegar. So that's not well known that chocolate actually makes vinegar as a byproduct. Uh, But actual chocolate itself gets um, put through a melanger, which is this grinding machine that goes really fine. And that ultimately gets tempered into chocolate bars. 
So there's quite a process behind making chocolate, which is why people don't even know what chocolate looks like or how it comes from a bean. Uh, but it's actually fascinating to see that not only is cocoa something that can help support livelihoods and rebuild communities, but it can help uh, reforest landscapes and build better biodiversity, which isn't well known as well because in the cocoa industry, it's known for being for unsustainable and deforesting entire plots of land. But when it's farmed regeneratively, it makes better harvest and much fruitier chocolate uh, because of the terroir. So that's something that people can enjoy now. Because of the, the terroir, it's a, it's a French yeah. thing that's used for vineyards, uh, I think. But now I'm using it for chocolates because there's a huge difference in the flavor. It's a lot fruitier if you try our local chocolate. Oh, it is absolutely wonderful talking to you. You're making probably everybody very hungry as, as well as anything else, wanting to go off and try some chocolate, but also people you know this is a podcast so people are listening to this but I, I hope they will go off and look at some of as I have been the extraordinary photos of the farms the plantations you on the plantations because they give such a wonderful sense of the wonderful things that you are doing so thank you so much for joining us thank you Hannah it's been a pleasure 